Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Or... And I'm going to take this nice and slowly. Chesh Shostky, and welcome to the history of Russia. Okay, so in the last few episodes, we've been following the life and times of the second Romanov Tsar, Alexei Mikhailovich, who reigned between 1645 and 1676 as part of the bigger chronological history of Russia, which will eventually, hopefully, bring us right up to the present day. But this week we'll be taking a break from the main narrative, and instead we'll be looking at late 17th century Russian society, and in particular, the institution of serfdom. Now all of that might sound just a little bit on the dry side, but I think that it's important to get a glimpse of how Russian society had developed and was structured at the time, mainly for context and background to the main story, but also to see how it compared to other European nations. Just before we get going though, there's a couple of announcements to go through. And first off, a big, massive thank you to listener Florian in Austria, who got in touch via the voicemail option on the website, that's historyofrussia.net, to give me some pronunciation tips for the Polish greeting that I've just used at the beginning of the episode. Hope it went well, Florian, and if it did, or even if it didn't, I'm sure you'll let me know. And then also, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that the music that plays us out at the end of each episode will be changing. Well, that starts with today's show, and just for this episode, I've included the whole track all 3 minutes, 18 seconds of it. Coincidentally, it's a recording of the 33rd Psalm, which comes from an album called Chants of the Russian Orthodox Church, number 2, by the monks and metropolitan choirs of the Kiev Pechersk Lavra, or the Monastery of the Caves in Kiev. Now, I think it's a hauntingly beautiful piece of music, and I hope you think so too, and I hope you enjoy it. 
So just as a reminder, at the end of this week's episode only, I'm putting the whole track there. Okay, if you're all ready then, let's do some history of Russia. So, bigger picture. At the end of the 17th century, two centuries worth of Renaissance, Enlightenment, the Age of Adventure and religious wars were starting to have an impact on governments and societies throughout most of Europe. Fledgling financial, trading and banking systems were starting to develop. Universities, of which there were only a handful prior to 1500, were springing up across the continent. The divinely ordained rule of mainly male kings and emperors, while still the norm, was becoming less autocratic in nature. And the church, while still of fundamental importance, was having to meet the challenge of new thoughts and new ideas. In short, change was very much in the air. However, Russia, which instead of the Renaissance, Enlightenment and the Age of Adventure, had developed as a state in the shadow of 200 years of Mongol dominance, almost constant Polish-Lithuanian wars and the tumultuous time of troubles, had no banking system, no universities, and wouldn't have until 1724, and still no year-round warm water port, meaning that it remained effectively landlocked. The Tsar, the supreme autocrat, theoretically answered to no one but God, although he was guided, or some would say advised and assisted, by the Boyar Duma, and to a lesser extent by the Zemsky Sabor, and the Russian Orthodox Church, schism and old believers aside, held a monopoly over religious matters. So Mikhail's, and in particular Alexei's reigns, had ended up maintaining and solidifying this state of affairs, which meant that Russia, despite reforms in the next century, would continue to go down its separate path, a path which impacted upon all levels of society, but most of all on those at the bottom of the pile. And the hierarchy for those levels of society went something like this, from top to bottom. God, Tsar, royal family, church, and then the boyars and nobles, merchants, and then the rest. Townspeople, peasants, serfs, and slaves. So very similar to most of the rest of Europe, but with one major difference, because feudal serfdom and slavery, well, at least in their own backyards in 1676, were no longer prevalent across the continent. Okay, so let's now look a bit deeper into the Russian class hierarchy and see what we can discover. So, God at the top, no need to explain the job spec, followed by the supreme autocrat, the divinely ordained Tsar, or as he was respectfully referred to by the common people, the true Tsar, or the Little Father. He's got a fairly short job description. Protect Russia, keep the dynasty going, keep the boyars and church in order, and find a scapegoat when things go wrong. Sounds easy, but in reality a tough ask, and a lot depended on the Tsar's personality, and of course, luck. Next came the immediate royal family. The Tsar's wife, or the Tsaritsa, 
was expected to fulfil several traditional behind-the-scenes roles. First was to have as many children as possible. Second was to be not seen and not heard. All Russian noblewomen of the time were expected to live their lives in a state of seclusion, with as little contact with men as possible. However, for the elite female royals, this was taken a step further, with a separate living area, referred to as the terem, which, whilst unrelated to the Arabic word harem, did represent a kind of institutional purda. At home, there was no socialising or contact with male guests. Outside of the home, royal women wore heavy, concealing clothing and travelled in covered coaches, and in church, they were hidden away at the back, behind thick screens. And then finally, when not producing children or hidden away in the terem, the Tsaritsa was expected to embody the ideal of female orthodox devotion and outside of her religious duties, manage the affairs of the court and participate in charitable activities. The sons of the Tsar and the Tsaritsa were all referred to as Tsareviches, although this would change at the end of the 18th century, and their daughters as Tsarevnas. All of the Tsareviches would receive an education of sorts, but for the royal princesses this was not the norm, and their lives were spent in what appears to modernise as a kind of stupefying, stifling semi-imprisonment, with either marriage, which at the time was never to a foreign prince, childbirth, or religious seclusion as their only career paths. Other male relatives of the Tsar, and I'm talking here about brothers, uncles, nephews, cousins, had in the past and still could represent a serious threat if they were ambitious for power or if the Tsar was weak and or remained childless. But the main problem was that there was very little else that could safely occupy them apart from military command or provincial governorship, and both of those could provide a disgruntled brother or uncle with a power base. Luckily, though, there were hardly any of them around in the late 1600s, and this trend would continue. Unluckily, or some would say luckily, for the Romanov Tsars, their female relatives would very shortly be filling the gaps. But we'll get to all of that in the fullness of time. Since Kievan Rus had officially adopted Christianity in either 988 or 989, you take a pick or you take your choice, the Russian Orthodox Church had developed over the following centuries to become the bedrock of Russian spiritual life. It had survived and indeed prospered during the Mongol occupation, won itself a patriarchate after the fall of Constantinople, and had come through the time of troubles unscathed. However, whilst it was the main show in town, it wasn't the only show in town, as there were small populations of Catholic and Protestant believers, mainly in the West, plus there were the old believers, and in the vast expanses of Siberia, there were many animist-based religions. But also, the church's prestige and power had been curtailed by the damaging effects of the schism. Alexei had left no one in doubt as to who was really in charge, and this was a stance his son Peter would also take in the next century. 
Nevertheless, the Russian Orthodox Church remained rich and powerful, mainly through its vast land holdings, and as the Russian state had expanded, so had the church and its clergy. In 1619, for example, pastoral care and church law had been governed and administered by the patriarch, Philaret, four metropolitans, six archbishops and a single bishop. Whereas by 1700, these numbers had doubled, but there was still only one patriarch. The real day-to-day work, though, was performed by a vast network of monks and parish priests who lived a world away from their superiors in Moscow and the other large cities. Okay, next up were the boyars or nobles who, drawn from around 200 families descended from former princes and old Muscovite boyar stock, formed a close aristocratic class that surrounded the throne of the Tsar and either advised and or ruled Russia with him, depending on the Tsar's character. The rank or title of boyar, which I think, by the way, is correctly pronounced as a boyar and comes from the Russian word boyarin, did not belong to all members of these families, but only to those senior officials to whom the Tsar had granted the title. And then just below this group, you had a separate body of junior administrators and royal servants called the Okolnichi. Together, these two layers formed the Boyar Council, which helped the Tsar direct the internal and foreign affairs of the state. The decisions of the Boyar Council, as confirmed by the Tsar, were recognised as the official form of legislation, and the Boyars and Okolnici generally served as heads of government departments, provincial governors, and military commanders. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Outside of the official elite, but still with a degree of political power and more importantly, money, sometimes a vast amount of money, came the merchant class. By the late 17th century, Russia had a well-developed group of merchants of all types, ranging from petty tradesmen who worked the local town or village markets, through to rich, powerful entrepreneurs like the Stroganovs, who traded internationally in salt, furs, precious objects, and imported goods of all types. Alexis' law reforms of 1649 had defined the merchant class as a privileged estate or caste, which in turn gave them a monopoly on all trading activities, which in turn meant that your average peasant or town dweller was barred from making a bit of money on the side, and more importantly, consigned them to the lowest echelons of society. And it's those lowest echelons of society, the townspeople, peasants, 
serfs and slaves that we'll concentrate on for the remainder of the episode. Mainly because, and it's difficult to ascertain a true figure, they made up around 80 to 90% of the population. And talking of population, well, Russia's overall population at the end of the 1600s was around the 13 to 14 million mark. In comparison, Sweden's was around 2 million, England's 5, the Commonwealth 9, France 21, and the Ottoman Empire 25. The most populous states in the world at the time, by the way, were China and India, with around 150 million people each. But back to those 12 to 13 million people who lived in Russia. Well, only a fraction, around 5 to 6% of them, lived in towns and cities, with Moscow the largest inhabited, by around 100,000 people, and Yaroslav and Novgorod the next biggest, with around 20 to 30,000 each. Most of the urban poor worked as labourers or artisans in construction trades or small manufacturing concerns, such as printing and cloth production. The vast majority of Russian people, though, worked in the fields. Their lives were brutal, very physically tough, short and poverty-stricken. The soils they planted their crops in were mostly thin and poor, the growing season was short, and food shortage or famine occurred once in every eight to ten years. And the icing on this grim, miserable cake was that most of the rural poor were classed as serfs and they were tied to their landowners, from whom legally, after 1649, there was no escape. So what was serfdom and how had it come about? Well, serfdom was a form of bondage or indentured labour which had developed out of the feudal system throughout Europe in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. In Russia, a similar system had been legalised and categorised by the various pravdas or legal codes that were laid down between the 11th and 13th centuries. And these had resulted in three main groupings. So first off, you had smurds, who were feudal-dependent peasants, a sort of proto-serf. Then we had zakops, who were feudal-dependent peasants, who could become free after paying off their zakop, or feudal loan. And then finally, we had Holops, who were, well, they were effectively slaves. In the aftermath of the Black Death in the 14th century, and further legal code refinements in the 15th century, this situation had been further developed into smirts, a reduced number of Holops, or slaves, and free or non-feudal peasants, and was pretty much on a par with most of the rest of Europe. However, from the 16th century onwards, Various new laws were put in place, mainly to appease the landowning class, that stopped the movement of smirts from one landowner to another, increased their taxes, and allowed landowners a five-year period to search for and bring back anyone who'd done a runner. So Russia now had a system of full-on serfdom, which tied the majority of peasants, around 80% of them, to their landowners, and during times of war, conscripted them into the army. Therefore, in terms of social conditions, 
the gap between Russia and the rest of the continent had started to widen. And this would continue to be the case as by the 17th century, escaping or attempting to escape were made criminal offences. Landowners could sell serfs to another landowner whilst keeping hold of their serfs' personal property and his or her family members. Russia would take a reforming step by banning slavery and holop status in 1723. But ironically, this removed one of the traditional sanctuaries and last resorts for destitute serfs and left escape to the Cossack wild fields or rebellion as the only avenues for the truly desperate. Some serfs, though, were able to make a bit of money on the side, even after fulfilling their duties for their landowners and paying their taxes. Yes, serfs paid tax, with those at the top of the pile even managing to buy land and hire their own serfs. Throughout the 18th century, though, various measures were put in place to curtail these activities. For example, in 1746, the state formally banned all Russians except for the nobility from possessing serfs. In 1722, all male peasants, including serfs, had to pay a poll tax. In 1730, all peasants, including state-owned serfs, serfs owned by the nobility and free peasants, were banned from buying land. In 1739, they were banned from buying serfs for themselves. And in 1760, landlords were allowed to exile their serfs to Siberia for misconduct and crimes and could also legally use corporal punishment. So in fact, pretty much every aspect of a serf's life was controlled in one way or another, even when, where and who they could marry. For the next 50 years, things remained pretty much as is. But at the beginning of the 19th century, the Romanovs had eventually woken up to the fact that serfdom only benefited the aristocratic landowning class and that it had effectively stopped Russia developing in line with most other European countries. And there was a third reason, revealed by none other than Tsar Alexander II, who, when he emancipated the serfs in 1861, declared, it is better to liberate the peasants from above rather than wait until they win their freedom by rising up from below. And so after 1861, did things suddenly become much better? Well, not really. The serfs had to continue working for their landlords for a two-year period and had to take out loans to pay over the asking price for small plots of land to call their own. Whereas the landowners kept large chunks of the best land and were compensated by the state for any financial losses that they incurred. So then, as now, the house always won. Okay, let's leave it there for this week. Next time, we'll be back to the main narrative and looking at the years 1676 through to 1689, a period which was riven by factionalism and which saw three of Alexei's sons, sort of, and one of his daughters, sort of, take charge in Russia. So, until then, I hope you enjoy the music, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon. 
sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code 
Lottery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.